I love it when he speaks the truth like that. It's beautiful. Hey, good morning, everybody. How many of you moved because you wanted to relocate from the person next to you? How many of you didn't, but you kind of wanted to, frankly? just, Just kidding. Well, we are continuing our series in Ephesians, Mysterious Connections. We are at week two. And the title for this weekend's message is A Wonderful Revolution. A Wonderful Revolution. And we're going to jump right into Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, the first 11 verses there. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace to be poured out on us who belong to his dear Son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his Son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. Those of you who were here last weekend would have heard me remark that I was, I was gone for some time during the summer and sadly what that meant is that I missed my favourite holiday of the year. Yes, the 4th of July. How I look forward to the 4th of July with a beautiful sense of feverish anticipation and how you help me in my joy as you come up to me in the halls and say, you lost. You know, the truth is, and some of you are going to be shocked when I say this, but before I came to America 25 years ago, I I didn't even know we'd had a fuss. I had never heard about the war. I'm serious. I never heard. I don't think I was there that day at school. Or maybe they didn't teach it. That's probably the truth. And, And so I was preaching in a church in California on the 4th of July years ago, and the pastor introduced me. And he said, the British are coming, the British are coming. <laughs> I'm like, I'm here, silly one, you know, what's that about? And then I, I realized how much I didn't know. So now I know about Paul Revere's midnight ride. How many know about Paul Revere? The British are coming, the British are coming. Now I know about the Revolutionary War, about this, this cry for freedom, a new way of life, no taxation without representation. I learned about that. I learned... That in 1773, you threw a bunch of tea into Boston Harbor. 
How rude! Some of you know that tea is the British national drink. I'm not talking iced tea, that demonic, satanic stuff. Throughout the ages, people have dreamed of a life that overthrows tyranny, a, a revolution, the French Revolution, 1787 onwards, where people oppressed and crushed by poverty threw off the heel of oppression. Karl Marx, Karl Marx who uh, had a dream and the famous quote, let the ruling classes tremble at a communist revolution. There is a world to win. Working men of all countries unite. Marx wrote of a new man, a new society, but the shortfall of his revolution was that he saw it simply in economic terms. The new society would be a classless society. The new man would emerge as a result of the economic liberation that he dreamed of, a revolution. But here in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul dreams a wonderful, magnificent dream that is so much bigger than any that I have mentioned. He sees the predicament of the human condition as being so much deeper than simply economic structure or politics. Uh, he is saying that there's something much bigger that needs to happen. The creation, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, the creation of a brand new humanity, a new society. He repeatedly writes in Ephesians about a new creation. Three times he talks about it. You see, a Christian is not simply a human being with some religion. A Christian is a brand new species of human being. So much so that the language used by Jesus to describe this is it's like being born again. And it's not just a metaphor, it is a spiritual reality. And so Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Uh, the letter was probably used also as a circular letter. The church there was healthy at this time, unlike the church in, in Corinth. Uh, but there was pressure. Things weren't easy. If you were here last weekend, you would have heard me talk about the, the persecution, the lynch mob that gathered in the city of Ephesus. Internationally, there was pressure. That emperor, that infamous emperor, Nero, was on the throne. This letter, probably written just two years before the great fire of Rome, which meant that government-sanctioned persecution would break out. So there's pressure in the city. And there is pressure beyond the city. And the Apostle Paul, as he writes, is now a prisoner. He's not sitting in a cell, but three times in Ephesians, he talks about being a prisoner. He talks about his chains. He is under house arrest. His movements are limited. But even as he's a prisoner, somehow under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he allows his heart and mind to soar. And his mind casts back to what God planned before the foundation of the earth. And his mind casts forward to the vista of eternity. And his mind fixes on what is now, what we have in Christ and what Christ calls us to be. And he pours out his 
heart. Ephesians, more than any other letter in the New Testament, has a component, a component of, of intercession, of praise, of worship. And frankly, it's not always easy to understand. The, the first 12 verses of Ephesians, it's all one sentence. Imagine that. One breathless sentence full of superlatives as Paul is just pouring out his praise to God because what God has done in this, this wonderful revolution. You know, before we really dive in and try and draw some key themes out from this, as I've been studying this through this week, I've been challenged. I've been challenged. When Jesus came into my life, it brought revolution. Is the revolution continuing? It's possible to embrace a kind of innocuous Christianity, which is Jesus as an add-on, an extension. Do you know something? Christianity makes a terrible hobby. Bit of religion on Sunday morning, help me get through the week. It's not going to work. Jesus is the revolutionary, the ultimate revolutionary. And he invites us to a life of seeing that re revolution continue to unfold. So let's, let's dive in here and see some of these key themes. First of all, Paul is talking about a plan to beat all plans. A plan to beat all plans. Chaos will be banished. Chaos will be banished. Look at verse 9. God has now revealed to us his mysterious plan regarding Christ, a plan to fulfill in his own good pleasure. And this is the plan. And mark these words, everybody. At the right time. At the right time. He will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. You will know that we have services here at Timberline, three on Sunday morning, um, one on Saturday night. That means I get to preach the same message four times every weekend. It means I, I get to hear myself four times. I said to my wife recently, I preach so much I get sick of the sound of my own voice. She said, I understand completely how you feel. <laughs> We were getting together last night as a pastoral team, as we always do, to pray before the services. And as we were just about to go to prayer, my cell phone beeped, and BBC and CNN told me the news of yet another terrorist atrocity, which has been the headlines in our news today. That is the tension that we currently live in, don't we? We live in a world where we are... People of faith and prayer, but we seem to live in such a, a, a broken world. And we're aware, I'm sure, that we're living in a day when conflict can spread more readily, not least because of an age of instant communication. In the Middle East, the democratic uprisings of the so-called Arab Spring led to anarchy in Libya, a counter-revolution in Egypt, a civil war in Syria. The war in Syria immediately became part of the larger region-wide conflict between Sunni and Shiite Muslims and spread, as we know, across the border into Iraq. By December 2013, 2013, rulers had been forced from power in Tunisia, Yemen, civil uprisings and major protests in Bahrain, Algeria, Jordan, Kuwait, Morocco and Sudan. An earthquake of turbulence. One commentator in Foreign Policy magazine said huge swathes of global territory 
are dominated by populist unrest, anger and effective loss of state control. And you know, as the, our cell phones beep with the headline update and as we consider the, the news in the evenings, our hearts can say, dear, dear Lord, is, is everything going to end on this planet in chaos, in some kind of nuclear eruption? Is, it, is chaos going to win? I have news based not on my projections or speculations, but based on Scripture. The answer is no. No. Because God has a big plan for the planet and the cosmos. You ask a Christian generally, uh, what is God's plan? And often we talk about individually the plan of salvation. We which is very important. Invite Jesus into your life. You get your sins forgiven and you go to heaven. That's a very truncated, abbreviated version of the message that often we Christians pass around. It is important to let people know that they need to invite Christ as their personal saviour. But there is a much bigger, awesome, epic plan that God is working to that is not just about me and you and our lives It's about the planet. It's his mysterious plan. Verse 9. And that is this. History is neither meaningless or purposeless. It is moving towards a glorious goal where one day, as if back to Eden, everything will be gathered together under Christ, who is the creator of all things. At the right time. Paul says, there is a big plan that God is working to. Chaos, ultimately, is not going to win. Can someone say an amen or something, you know, because I know we're not an amen, praise the Lord, church. I know that, but let's break the habit of a lifetime, people. I mean, you know, this is... (laughs) That doesn't mean that everything's going to be all right. We don't know that everything is going to be all right. There are Christians around the world today facing persecution. We don't know how it's going to, in the short term, turn out. Neither does that mean that everything that happens is God's will. God doesn't always get his will done, which is why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. It was not God's will that a person be executed yesterday. doesn't mean that. But what it means is that we are not abandoned On a planet in chaos, God has a plan. And ultimately, it will all be reconciled together under Christ. Don't be afraid. Secondly, Paul talks about a new creation people. A new creation people. We're all saints. We're all saints. Look at verse 18. I'm writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Now, this holy people idea, in the King James Version, it's translated to the saints in Ephesus. I I, I don't know whether you you knew this, but if you're sitting next to a follower of Jesus this morning, you're sitting next to a saint. You say, you don't live in our house. (laughs) I mean, by all means, feel free to call me Saint Geoffrey. You see, we've got this idea of saints mixed up like a saint is a sort of super, super Christian. That's not what 
Paul is saying. And we get confused about holiness as well. You know, have you ever met Christians? They think to be holy, you've got to be miserable. You know, one of the frozen chosen. <laughs> Don't really believe in fun before death. They've got joy, but it's deep. Or Christians who think that to be holy means you can't have anything to do with those big bad people out there in the world. It's a ridiculous idea. Try that with Jesus in the way that he engaged with people. Or the, or the people who think that holiness is about following a certain set of rules and regulations. Of course, if we are followers of Jesus, we will follow by the power of the Holy Spirit the principles of his word. But so often people of a holiness tradition have created human legalistic rules and regulations. The Pharisees did that. The Pharisees had rules about whether you could pray if you were up in a tree. I'm not making it up. It's true. The Pharisees had a rule about whether you were made unclean if you were touched by a mouse. Not a computer mouse. Just to be clear. Pharisees debated the question, if you are baking bread while naked and you want to offer that bread as an offering, is it unclean? That one's been worrying me for quite a while. Hasn't it? Oh. oh, yeah. What is a saint? Is it someone who follows all those little rules and has a PhD in goodness? No. The word holy, the word saint, simply means to be set apart. To be set apart for God's purposes. This is so important. Because often we think that holiness is simply about our behavior. But please get this. Holiness is not just rooted in knowing what's right. Holiness is rooted in an identity that affirms that we belong to God. If we've sorted out the issue that we are his possession... That will lead to right behavior. The New Testament is at pains to affirm that. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6 says, You do not belong to yourself, but God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. Now, now, stop right there. You see, what that means is that the right behavior is not just right because it's good for you. Even though that's true. But ultimately, the message is, no, do what is right with your body because your body doesn't belong to you if you're a follower of Jesus. 1 Peter 2.9, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. And you know what happens to us is we give our lives to Jesus, but gradually erosion takes place and we gradually take them back. We're gods. But not only are we gods, but because we belong to God, Paul says, now we have authority in Christ. Look at verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. What does that mean? This is unusual language, heavenly realms. Paul uses that kind of phraseology five times in Ephesians. Does it mean that this morning you are in Fort Collins and you're also in heaven? No. 
What it means, this is not heaven, this is heavenly realms. What this means is because we are in Christ, that gives us authority in heavenly realms where angels and demons function. It means that we have been granted authority, particularly in prayer. Why do we pray? Well, we pray because we belong to God and we've been invited into a partnership of authority and prayer under Christ. Have you given up praying for that situation? Isn't it true sometimes we do that because we pray and we pray and we pray and we don't want to pray about it anymore because we don't want to be disappointed anymore? Is it possible that God would want to stir our hearts again to remind ourselves whose we are. Most of the major mess-ups in my life have just because I've drifted into a subconscious notion that I'm independently owned and operated. I belong to him. So do you if you're his. What about prayer? Thirdly, there's a concrete truth for a postmodern world. There's a concrete truth for a postmodern world. Christ is the way. Look at verse 5. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Isn't it true, ladies and gentlemen, that one phrase that people are nervous of in our culture is simply this Isn't it true? We live in a world where people are nervous of any kind of absolutes. The suggestion is, if you believe in an absolute truth, you're probably an arrogant bigot. And there's something wrong with you. But how many would agree with me that there are some truths that are true? I stand before you as a follically challenged man. It's the truth. I used to have a full head of hair. Now I have a shrinking peninsula looking somewhat like Florida. <laughs> I can deny it as much as I like. It's true. But relativism says truth is whatever you want it to. Truth is whatever's true for you. So if you want to begin every day by standing on your head, stark naked in your bathroom, meditating on an Ecuadorian fruit bat by the name of Doris the Winged One. <laughs> Where did that thought come from? And that's kind of cool, dude. But it's, it's illogical. When, when I finished here this weekend, when I drive home, when I drive out of the Timberline parking lot, it's no good me saying, which way will I go? But, ah, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, it'll all end up the same way. No, I'm going to end up in California. <laughs> the idea of pluralism that always lead to God Ladies and gentlemen, the Apostle Paul drives a truck through those ideas. He uses this phrase, in Christ, ten times in this passage. He uses that phrase 36 times in this letter, 165 times in his 13 epistles. It may be politically incorrect to say it, and we don't need to be arrogant or rant about it, but we declare this truth on the confidence of God's word, Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. He is it. Amen. 
it was nice of you to applaud, but I wasn't really waiting for that. I just want, I just want that quiet sense of confidence without arrogance or bigotry to be in us today. A dab of spirituality won't work, sir. An evangelist was being interviewed on a TV show, late night talk show, and the interviewer said, you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, do you? And the evangelist said, no, it's not that I'm saying that. He paused for a moment and said, actually, I do believe it, but it's not because I say it, it's because Jesus says it. And I sit under the authority of that affirmation. And it might be that this weekend, it is time, ladies and gentlemen, to solidly calibrate ourselves with that truth. Because Jesus, you can't just admire him. You can't just say, nice teaching, good one. Because he's either the resurrected son of God, or he's a deceiver. There is a solid, concrete truth in a postmodern world. Fourthly, there's a family formed by grace. A family formed by grace. We've been adopted. Look again at verse 5. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family. This is now my 40th year in ministry. No, I hear you cry. I didn't really hear anybody gasp in amazement. I was ordained to the ministry when I was two. (laughs) Forty years, and sometimes people say to me, what's the most powerful event in those 40 years of ministry? And I know the answer without any hesitation. I know the venue. I know the day. I know the time. I was preaching at a Youth for Christ event in England 28 years ago, it was pouring with rain, British summer, a thousand young people in a soggy tent, and I was invited to speak on the power of the Holy Spirit. I was walking across to the tent, Bible in hand, and as I walked towards the tent, I felt that God spoke to me and said this, tonight I will teach you a lesson that you will never forget for the rest of your life. I'd planned to talk about the fatherhood of God and the power of the Spirit. My son Richard, who is now 30, was two then, and Kay was waiting at the side of the platform with Richard. I said, when I talk about fatherhood, why don't you just send Richard across the platform? I'm going to pick him up and hold him and talk about our father-son relationship and use that as an illustration of fatherhood. So the musicians are playing. Richard comes out. I pick him up. People sigh and say, oh, he's so cute. And I realize they're talking about Richard. (laughs) And he throws open his arms suddenly. And I think he's going to punch me on the nose, which frankly would have wrecked the illustration. But he threw his arms around my neck and buried his head into my shoulder. And at that moment, it was like the Holy Spirit hit that meeting. Ten or fifteen people just literally fell to the ground. There were like waves of the power of God. It was unbelievable, but believable. 
Within about three or four minutes, as I just stood there trying to gather my senses, a line of people formed at the right-hand side of the platform, I don't know, 10, maybe 15 of them, who had been instantly physically healed at that moment. And they came to the front to, to just say what God had done, and I, I hadn't even invited them to do it. How rude! People have come to me in the last year, 28 years on, and they've said, I was there that night. What was it that created such an ignition of power? It was a portrait of fatherhood. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, you've been adopted. You've been adopted by a loving father. Jim Packer says adoption is the highest blessing of the gospel. He says to be right with God the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God is is greater You see, some of us know that we've been justified. We've been justified by faith, the great truth of the Reformation. And that's a biblical truth and a wonderful truth. But listen, everybody, the language of justification is the language of the courtroom. It doesn't stop there. Justification, the language of the courtroom, leads us to adoption, the language of the family room. Some of us have got stuck on justification And for whatever reason, have never been able to relax in the truth, the glorious truth, that God is our Father. And note this for those of us who struggle with that language, because fatherhood has not been good for you. The Bible never teaches that God is like your dad. That's not what Jesus taught. Jesus taught God is not like your dad. He is so much greater, so much more wonderful than the best human father could ever be. I, I wonder what our image of God is. Is, is your image of God like, like this, like a, uh, a father who loves to be around his, his kids, adoption? Or, or is it like this, the, the, the judge? <laughs> the judge is just waiting to get you. And I just want to clarify so you don't have to ask me later. That is not a selfie, people. (laughs) Just to be clear. We're adopted. In New Testament times, when you were adopted, you got a new life. Your previous identity was cancelled out. Your previous debts were gone. You had no rights in your former family. You had all the rights of the fellow members of your new family. We're adopted. The last point is this, number five. We're a royal chosen nation. We've been elected. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. This is one of the most difficult verses and difficult truths in the New Testament. And I'm not going to solve it because theologians have been arguing about this for the last 1950 something years. And I'm not going to sort it out in the next two minutes and one second which is how long I've got left in this message. I say that just to give you hope. (laughs) There are some people who believe that the idea of being chosen or elected is individualized. Yeah, yeah, you're in and you're in and and you're in, but not you and not you and not you and there's nothing you can do about it. Can I say there are lots of different views on this, but I don't read it that way at all. Paul is talking corporate language. 
And he is using the truth that Israel as a nation was elected, chosen by God for his purposes. And now he is talking about the church being a beacon people. In other words, I don't believe, and there are different views, but I don't believe that God says you're in, you're in, you're not, you're not. But I believe that we are predestined to be God's people as we become part of the corporate, which is the body of Christ. And God has chosen to use the body of Christ, the church worldwide, to be a beacon people. You know what that says? What it says is that we need a higher view of church. What a privilege it is, it is to be part of church. Can church be irritating sometimes? Yeah. Do rude people come to Timberline? Yeah. yeah. Do we get it right all the time? No. Do people irritate you when they take the parking space that Jesus gave you? <laughs> yeah. Is Timberline full of perfect people? No, look around. Look who they let come. <laughs> Including me. But you see, the issue is not irritating or not. They didn't sing my song. They didn't use my translation of the Bible. That's not the point. The point is that in Christ and in church, we have been called together to make a difference. And the very notion of a, an individualized relationship with Jesus that exists without being part of the body corporate, the church, is in New Testament terms, doesn't work. We need a higher view of what a privilege it is to be part of the people of God. It's a wonderful revolution, a wonderful revolution. Let our hearts be filled with hope. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you today for this vision of all that you have done for us in Christ, that the Apostle sets out in this magnificent letter we pray today that we might be a people who realize that we are saints we are called to be set apart for your purposes many of us Lord we've given our lives to you help us not to take them back we pray Lord that you will set our hearts at peace to recognize that you will bring about your great plan we pray today for those whose hearts are broken by trauma and tragedy around the world let your kingdom come Lord both now and later we pray Lord that you will you will help us to move not only in the truth of justification but also in the wondrous reality that we've been adopted by a loving Father. Let that truth release your power in a greater way in our lives. Give us a higher view of the privilege of church, we pray. It's not about Timberline, it's not about this church, but it is about church and your purposes. And we pray together now, all of us, quietly, for any here 
who have never come to that place of saying, Jesus, you are the concrete reality. I want to follow you. Let's just keep our heads bowed. And I'm going to pray a little prayer in a moment. If you'd like to become a follower of Jesus, you can use this prayer. If you are a follower, but you know that you've very much taken your life back into your own hands and you want to today at 11.01 on a Sunday, you want to say, here it is again, Lord, my plans, my ambitions, I give it back to you. You can use this prayer. So are you ready as we keep our heads bowed? Jesus, you're the way. Take charge. Forgive me. Cleanse me. Thank you for your work on the cross, for your resurrection. My life is yours. I give it to you. Help me to continue to live in that reality of this choice today. Keep your heads bowed for one moment longer if you would. If you've just prayed that prayer, either because you're becoming a Christian or because you know it's about giving your life back, I'm going to ask you just to slip up your hand for a moment and then put it down. Would you do it right now, please? And all around this auditorium, people are doing just that. You can put your hands down. Thank you for what you are birthing, Holy Spirit, in this place. May fruit come. In Jesus' name, everyone said. I want you to know.